0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: You are listening to Chats in Linguistic Diversity, brought to you by Macquarie University and the Language on the Move Network, hosted by Ingrid Pella. My guest today is Dr. Pierce Kelly, an anthropologist from Literature Researcher at the University of New England in Armidale. Pierce's PhD is from the Australian National University in Canberra on a Scyon is a utopian language and script that was created over 100 years ago by a radical prophet in the southern Philippines. Now that sounds super intriguing, but she's um, also an expert on something even more intriguing, and that's Aboriginal message sticks, and that's what we'll be talking about today. Pierce is the creator and editor of the Australian message database, a digital repository of more than 1,100 message sticks, and their associated metadata, and um, he's the author of a fascinating new article that has just come out in the Journal of Material Culture. That article is called Australian Message Sticks, Old Questions, New Directions. Welcome, Peers. Thank you. Keir, how did you get
0: interested within message sticks? Well, um, I heard somebody in Europe give a talk on the under linear A-script of crease and in the talk she mentioned Australian message sticks as a kind of comparative aside, and I thought to myself, well, why don't I know something about this? And this was shortly before I was about to start a postdoc at the Max Planck Institute in Jena in Germany, in a lab that was looking at the evolution of graphic codes of all kinds. And it occurred to me that I was the only Australian at the Institute at that time, and I should bring something Australian to the topic. So when I was back in Canberra, I contacted the National Museum of Australia that has some terrific method sticks. The museum was very helpful, and they agreed to photograph the 50 or so method sticks in their collection at no cost. Uh, and this became the basis for the database that you mentioned. And I also got some help from IATSIS. Um And then back in Germany, I began very slowly developing the database by, mostly by visiting European museums. And I was surprised at just how many message sticks are in those museums, particularly in Germany and the UK. And I didn't start out with any big questions, just a kind of curiosity to learn a bit more than I did and it was never really my main project. When I was at the Max Planck Institute, I was mostly working on writing systems and the question of how communities that are traditionally non-literate, how they appropriate or reinvent writing systems for their own purposes. And now I'm still interested in that, but I've kind of put that question on pause for a while and I'm focusing more deliberately on message sticks.
1: Why the method stick? What actually is it? It's it's a hard
0: question because a method stick can look like anything. Um, But a very typical shape if you like is um, if you can imagine a piece of um, polished wood that's about 20 centimeters long maybe. Uh, It's tapered at one end and sometimes it's tapered at both ends. It can be more or less flattened like, like a ruler or it can be cigar shaped and then it has are markings along its surfaces. So the most common markings are simple notches and lines, and you also get dots or stippling. but there can also be quite elaborate and iconic pictures, and some of them are so fine uh, and small that they're only visible if you look very closely in bright lights. And that's been my struggle in a museum setting where where it's not always possible to get a bright light. So that's the typical shape, a, a tapered polished Stick that's marked with signs, but then there's quite a diversity across Australia. So there's a method um from Mornington Island uh, in the National Museum of Australia, that's a metre and a half long, uh, which is huge. It's painted, and it has emu feathers affixed to one end, uh, and a beautiful object. And then in the database, the smallest one uh, is one that I came across in the Pitt River Museum. And it's just over five centimetres long. Um, it's tiny, it's wrapped up in toss and fur twine, um, and it's from the Waniwaku people of um, Western New South Wales. But um, so one of the things I found that complicates the question even further of what a, a message stick is supposed to look like is the fact that in a tight spot, um, Aboriginal people could use other things as mess sticks. So, there's a wonderful example of a theatre from Victoria that was repurposed as a message stick, and sadly it's been lost in a fire.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, and so now that we know what they look like or what a typical message stick look like, looks like, what did Aboriginal people do with it? What, How was it used? What's the purpose? And maybe you can break the rest for us. In how were these message sticks used in pre-colonial times? How were they used in the late 19th, early 20th century? And how are they used today, or are they still used today?
0: Well, um, just quickly answering the last question first, they are still used today in a in a in a different way that they used before. They're still used. They're certainly used today. Um, but the traditional way um, that message sticks were used in pre-colonial times follow the kind of set routine that, in my understanding, is reasonably consistent across Australia. And it goes something like this. So if someone wants to send a message to another person or, or to another community that lives outside of their own territorial jurisdiction, um, they appoint a messenger who is usually a man, uh, and then they go off and harvest a small piece of wood, which they then begin carving in the presence of this appointed messenger. And while they're carving it, they explain the content of the intended message and the meaning of the individual signs carved on it. For example, it might be, you know, it's time to hunt kangaroos, they're plentiful, um, we need to coordinate people for the hunt. And so the, the person who's the sender is making the stick and, and explaining that's the message. And then the messenger takes a message stick and sets off towards the camp of the intended recipient or recipients. And what's important at this stage is that his identity and his purpose as a messenger is made really clear. So the message stick is displayed publicly. It can be hung on the end of a spear or inside a net bag. Uh, it can be tucked in a waist girdle or a headband. There are examples of message sticks, really small ones, that are, in fact, uh, have been stuck through the nose or through the septum. Um, but the point is that everyone must be able to see it, and the messenger can kind of signal on his role through things like body pain as well. Um, and everyone needs to know that uh, he has a message, because there's a strong protocol of, uh, as it were, not shooting the messenger, or not, at least not spearing the messenger, because once he passes into a country over which he doesn't have traditional rights of access, Um, He would otherwise be placed in in danger of being killed uh, as a trespasser on the spot. Um, So he crosses over a political boundary without harm uh, and approaches the camp of the recipient and usually sits some distance away so everyone can see him uh, and that he means no harm uh, and that he has this kind of ambassadorial mission, if you like. And then eventually he'll perhaps be given food and invited to approach the camp. And at this point he delivers the message to the recipient. Um, along with a verbal explanation of what it means, as it was conveyed to him by the original sender. This, again, is all still done very publicly. Um, The recipient might then carve a message stick as a response or simply give a verbal reply, which the messenger then takes back home. So that's the kind of classical routine with variants around the place. Some groups did all of that, but without a message stick at all. and for so them, the messenger, um, so the, for example, the Dierry people of uh, South Australia didn't use message sticks, um, but they still did that routine. And the messengers, interestingly, for the Dierry were women, always women, Most um, elsewhere in Australia, for almost always men. Um, then this routine uh, of the messenger, the defender, the messenger of the city, it began to change with the expansion of the colonies. Aboriginal people began to uh, take advantage of different forms of transport like horses, carriages, steamers and so on. The motifs that appeared on method sticks were also influenced by new signs introduced by settlers. Um, there's an example of a method stick with a representation of police stripes and insignia, for example. Um, there's one I saw at the Pitt Rivers Museum um, that has playing card suits are uh, inscribed on it and this one was in fact once owned by Beverly uh, Patterson which is an in each detail. Um, there's a few from the Kimberley region that have intriguing representations of what look like letters of the Roman alphabet um, and it's also in this time that there are um, cases of non-Indigenous people, uh, settlers, uh, learning how to make rapid sticks and then using them to communicate with Indigenous communities so it becomes this kind of hybrid um hybrid technology. Uh and then as the you know, as the nineteenth century wears on, it, it seems more common also for women to be sending messages or to be messaging themselves even in places where women traditionally didn't do that. So the system is getting shaken up by the expanding colonies and it's finding ways to adapt. Um by the early 20th century, sticks are no longer widely used in that traditional routine that I outlined before, except um, in the top end, in places like Arnhem Land, um, Tiwi Islands, Groot Island, uh, which are places that are very interesting for my research. But it continues there up until, uh, in some places, up until the 1970s. Um, meanwhile, in the rest of Australia, there's the emergence of a new tradition of what I've called. Um, artistic message sticks or replicative message sticks and this this tradition coincides with the rise of commercial indigenous art production. So indigenous carvers begin making message sticks specifically as objects for sale to settlers. Um and in some cases they may look similar or even identical to the traditional message sticks, but they're not invested with any communicative meaning. And this is a practice that continues in various forms today. I uh, And in, in fact, a large number of the message sticks in museums come from this tradition. But meanwhile, back in the top end, um, where the traditional practice was continuing, we get the emergence of yet another practice, which is about using message sticks in very high-profile political negotiations with non-Indigenous institutions. For example, uh, and the earliest example I have of this is a group in the Tiwi Islands sent a message to Prime Minister Robert Menzies in 1951, um, and Indigenous leaders from Urukren and Mornington Island sent a joint message to Prime Minister Gough Whitman in 1974 to, to demand land rights. Bob Hawke got one in 1983. Uh, there was even a message stick tabled in the Senate in 2007. Um, and last year, you might um you might have heard of a guy called Alwyn Dorn, who's a, an indigenous man from Queensland, and he walked 8,000 kilometers to deliver three message sticks to Scott Morrison, who in fact refused them, which were kind of extraordinary. So this is a practice, this kind of high-profile political uh, message sticks is still going strong, and it's very much a continuation of these earlier practices when message sticks could sometimes have a very strong diplomatic function. Um, and late 19th century ethnographies talk about message sticks being like a royal seal that um, authenticates the messenger and his message. And of course, one of the purposes traditionally was to solidify alliances. So that's a I see very a strong continuation of that from a part of Australia where the tradition is, is very strong up until um, you know through the 20th century. Um, what's really different about the contemporary political use of message sticks is that they're almost they Always been passed from an Indigenous representative to a non Indigenous institution. Um, and unlike the traditional routine, the sender and messenger are usually one and the same person. So you make a message stick and you carry it yourself to the Prime Minister or whoever else. So that's, a, that's an innovation.
1: That's pretty shocking to hear that the Prime Minister would actually refuse to accept the message stick and the lead will go home. Yes i think.
0: I was in contact with our oh. at the time and um we were coordinating we were trying to together write something about this but it was very hard because he he had a smartphone he bet he was on the road for so long and um when he started out his journey um it was before the election so he didn't on the anyone and he arrived just in time for the result and um so, I wonder if it hadn't been Bill Shorten had won the election, it might have been a different case, but it was a real missed opportunity, I think.
1: Yeah, indeed. And that kind of brings us to um, this question of why do we actually know so little about message six, I suppose. Um, I have to tell you, the first I heard about message six was like, um, Late like two years ago when I saw a tweet of yours about message sticks on Twitter and um, I I believe this wasn't the first time I actually saw message sticks because I've been to the um aboriginal collections of a number of the museums that have quite a few message sticks. I've been to the Australia South Australian Museum in Adelaide. Um I've been to the National Museum of Australia, I've been to um the Volkerkunde Museum and Leipzig and in Berlin. So I feel like I must have seen it sticks in museums before I actually before your tweet drew my attention to them. And that to me in a sense um you know exemplifies that there is something going on with our lack of attention. So then can you maybe explain why we know so little, and also talk a bit about the lenses that have shaped our knowledge about message sticks?
0: Well, it's interesting that, you know, all those museums are, are important collections, but even so, uh, you're unlikely to have seen them on display. So there, they would have been in, in Leipzig... Um, they got quite a number of methods sticks, but they're all in storage. Um, there's, a few of them are on display in the local uh, library, like six, three of them. Um, but a uh, National Museum, I've not seen them on display. South Australian Museum, maybe or maybe not. I'm not sure. So it's one of those curious things about museums is what you see is only a tiny uh, fraction of what there is. Um, and some of these things will never get seen unless someone asks to see them, they just sit there forever Um, but yes I don't really know why there's so little written about message Six. I was worried when I started out on this research area that maybe maybe they're not that interesting in the end maybe that's why um, and that's certainly not true it turns out and it could have something to do with the fact that um, I think they don't enter into the historical record, uh, into the kind of public historical record until the 1870s and on the whole, settlers just didn't notice that this was going on, that Indigenous people um, were communicating in this way. And by the time they clocked onto it in in the 1880s and the 1890s, massive sick communication was already entering into sharp decline across most of Australia. Um, the colonies had expanded almost everywhere. There were, of course, restrictions placed on the movements and activities of Indigenous people. Um, and nonetheless there was a strong wave of inflicting method sticks from the eighteen eighties uh, through to the early nineteen hundreds and this, this kind of thirty year period uh, is when most of the method sticks in museums today entered the collections. Um, but it's also a period that coincides with the, the high watermark of um, social evolutionist theory in Europe and America and Australia, this idea that All human societies could be ranked on a continuum from, you know, quote-unquote, savagery through to, quote-unquote, civilization. And the aim of archaeological practice and anthropology was to go and look for those diagnostic markers that told you where a given society was on an evolutionary scale. And the most important criterion in this model uh, for attaining civilization was that you have writing. And that was the crowning technology because it allowed... Uh, records to be made and you know writing literally brought a society into history essentially um, and indigenous people around the world were considered to be ahistorical or pre-historical because they didn't have writing they were they were timeless or they were seen as kind of representative of earlier phases of European prehistory. Um and it's important to recognize that social evolutionism these ideas were not fringe theories at the time they were paradigmatic and even critics of the theory, people like the brilliant um um black Haitian um anthropologist Avon and Simon, who critiqued the model, they still accept he still accepted the premises. He took the premises for granted, many of them. So it was very much hegemonic. And Aboriginal people in um Australia in this in this framework were placed on the lowest rung in that evolutionary scale on the basis of things like an absence of pottery, an absence of metallurgy, and of course, writing. Um, But then a a German anthropologist that you may have heard of by the name of Adolf Bastian, he got wind of method sticks in in Cooktown when he was there in the 1880s, and it was just as he was about to catch a boat home, and he talks about being so excited um, that he was debating whether he should miss his steamer in order to kind of find out more about method sticks. He uh, he didn't miss his boat, um, but he in the in the few moments that he had, the few hours he had, he found an Aboriginal trooper who uh volunteered to make a method stick for him and to explain how it worked. And Bastion started thinking, Hang on, this looks pretty much like writing. Um and if that's the case we really mean to rethink what we understand uh what we've desired civilization to be. And this preceded a lot of discussion in various scholarly forums about about Method Sticks, um what they were. Um the anthropologist, the well known anthropologist A. W. Howard, uh, sent a questionnaire to settlers all over the country and asked, Well, what do you know about Method Sticks? And then he um compiled and summarized the responses and it led to a debate among settler scholars in a few journals about whether message sticks represented writing. Well, it was framed as a debate. So really the hypothesis that method sticks represented some kind of language, specific language, was always set up as a straw man. You know, well, there are some people out there who maintain the view that message sticks are writing, but this is ludicrous because X, Y, and Z. And the consensus position was really that message sticks were largely meaningless, that all the real information was carried in the verbal exchange. Um, and the method stick was really only a kind of token of authentication, or it was a prompt to help the messenger remember the message. At the same time, though, the very same people, people like A.W. Howitt and later Walter Ross, admitted that the signs on method sticks potentially had conventionalized um, semantic values, and they even went so far as to kind of uh, identify them and gloss these these meanings from individual objects. Uh-huh. So there was a kind of contradiction at the heart of what settlers colors were doing and I think it comes down to the fact that they were approaching sticks from a very Eurocentric perspective that kind of admitted that the only significant or real graphic code out there was writing something that modeled the sounds of language. If you did anything else with visual signs it was just a kind of noise or decoration. And I think this was a, a missed opportunity because after having, you know, quote-unquote, solved the question of what message sticks were, then the research energy really waned. And um, tragically, uh, collectors decided at this point that there was no need to make any effort to consult message stick makers um, to understand what the objects were intended to mean. So collecting institutions are filled with message sticks that have ultra details. Physical descriptions. You know, it's 16.5 centimeters long, it's made out of this kind of pieces of timber. Here's the Latin name, and it has fine cross hatching along its transverse connection, but actually, nothing about who made it and what its intended meaning was. Sometimes, not even where it's from, or you get a label like Western Australia, which is not very helpful. Um, and this is why I think the very best descriptions of Methodistics were made. Before this prejudice took hold, so settlers and ethnographers like Bastian were open-minded about the possibility, So they recorded much more detail, assuming everything to be to be relevant. But after deciding that even the message sticks were not that interesting because they weren't writing, we get these very extraordinary events cropping up in in the archives and newspapers and so on. Um, accounts of message sticks that are successfully interpreted without a messenger. So there's no verbal messenger. There's a verbal message that's going alongside them. There are cases of messengers who died on their mission, but the message is the message stick is recovered and then read. Um a bishop uh, in the Northern Territory even conducted a kind of experiment where he was asked to deliver a message stick with a verbal message from I think Darwin to Daily Waters and he he decided, just as an experiment to withhold the purple message and just hand over the stick to the recipient. And the recipient of the message took it and he accurately read it, um, and he correctly read it as a request for headbands and boomerangs, um, and correctly identified the sender too. Um, and Indigenous people also started sending them through the post, for example. Um, there was one that I loved that was sent um, by an Indigenous soldier serving in World War II, which got intercepted by the military censor, and it was um, it was released without censorship as well, which I think is glorious. Of course, no one else would have been able to read it in the censorship office. I assume, uh, let alone not the not the enemy, whoever that was. Um, so it's clear that the, these message sticks were doing something uh, communicative. They're not just uh, redundant tokens or prompts for memory. And so I think the, the short answer to your question of why we know so little about them is, you know, very early on the communication was uh, mischaracterized, which which derailed research. And this is why we have, unfortunately, ended up with so little, I think, in the way of substantial knowledge. Yeah, it's
1: so, so sad and, and, and such a loss. And Do we actually have a chance or Ever finding out more about message sticks and their use in pre colonial times, or do we just need to go and think, oh, well, I mean, un- unfortunately, these they thought that thought had the wrong idea? Not only did they not leave us any information, but they also sent out the practice, and so it's just law.
0: Um, no, I think there is a chance. Firstly, um, there is, um, there's about 150 or so methods, statistics that are reasonably well described, where we get some detail about the context, the methods. In a very rare case, if we get the original transcription of the original language of the verbal methods, Um We know where, we know when, you know, um, we even have individual motifs that are glossed um, in, in even rarer cases. Um, so that's um, that's that's one way um that that we can approach the question. There's also I mean some of my work up north is where message sticks were used quite recently. Um and so there are people alive today who can still make a message stick, who can interpret a message stick, who can talk about message sticks. Um there's very few. Um I could probably count them on one hand and um um, that's that that I, I know of, um, but this is also this is also an opportunity to gather several of the traditional years. But as for um, you know finding out in pre-colon like going back before 1788, that's a challenge. Um, so there are no message sticks really that are recovered from archaeological sites, which is not unusual because. Um, Australian climates and soils are not kind to things that are made of wood. Um, there are very few wooden objects that turn up in Australian archaeology, and even fewer that predate colonisation. There's possibly one from a cave in Arnhem Land, but it's perhaps not a method stick. I haven't examined it yet. Um, to turn the clock back before 1788, without recourse to archaeology, uh, my clue that I'm Hoping to be able to work on our uh, first their distribution, but figuring out where message sticks are traditionally used and where they are not. So, we do have documentation of groups that have been given this uh And maps can be powerful because they reveal that way, they reveal patterns that weren't otherwise obvious. So, that's something I'm trying to work on now. Um, and connected to that process of figuring out the distribution, I'm looking at Words for message stick in various Australian languages, and I've only got about 60 or um, so far. Um, but I hope that this information will tell will tell us something about, you know, contact and diffusion and inheritance and other wonderful things that historical linguistics can do uh, on that lexical level. And lastly, it's a bit of a moonshot, but I'm I'm looking into oral history, so I've been interviewing senior knowledge holders in the top end about their memories and stories that have been passed down to them. And this history is sometimes quite recent and sometimes potentially quite ancient. And there are terrific stories but are most, there's temporal markers in those stories. It's not always easy to establish whether they relate to pre-colonial or post-colonial events. And I have one story, for example, that involves Macassarese reeves interactions um, But I really really need to work on this further, it's a challenge.
1: Wow, Uh, you've just mentioned that, you know, you're looking at the different words for message sticks in the different Australian languages. And one of the um, hypotheses that you mentioned in your article is actually that message sticks may also have been used as a means of communication across linguistic boundaries. I was wondering whether you could maybe tell us a bit more about um, linguistic diversity and multilingualism in pre-colonial Australia?
0: Yeah, um, I mean that's interesting too because I'm just looking at the words, I've been going back to that recently, and their words for message methods, they co-lexify often uh, with words for other things like stick or wood or whatever. Um, but then up in the top end um, and parts of the Kimberley and son of Queensland, what's the message to give Mark, um, which is I'm pretty positive uh, borrowing from Creole in parts of Australia where Creole isn't really used so much. Um, so I, I don't know. I'm just thinking about this. Why why would you have a borrowed Especially in places where the tradition is strong and, and it points to this kind of multilingual environment. Uh and also the fact that these are these are mobile objects. They are moving across territories where different languages are spoken. So it presents another challenge, I think. Um so we do know um methods certainly used across linguistic boundaries to the extent that language boundaries coincided to a greater, greater or lesser degree with political boundaries, so that point where you must not cross unless you have permission. Um, and what interests me is the fact that the original verbal message might have been communicated to the messenger in one language, and then that messenger may have passed on the message to its recipient yes. in another language, uh, and we have to bear in mind, of course, um, that You know, as we know, Indigenous communities were and still are highly multilingual. So multilingualism is not, and there has been a barrier to communication. On the contrary, languages multiply your capacity for communication, like if you're a bigger repertoire. Um, Having felt that, I'm interested in the extent to which message sticks might have been used as an additional semiotic resource, alongside language, alongside things like body paint and gesture. Excuse me. And one thing that um, 19th century ethnographers universally believed was that message sticks had an authenticating function and a mnemonic function. So it authenticated your role as a messenger. It authenticated the message, and it helps you remember what the message was. And I think the authentication is real, but I don't think they really had a mnemonic function because the messages. (laughs) That we have that are all recorded, um, that are documented, are all very short. At most, um, you know, they match about six lines of text when you write it out. And traditionally, people could and still can recall, you know, song cycles that went all day long. So I think it comes from a literate mentality to assume that we can't remember anything substantial unless it's written down. What I think is more likely is that method six are all about mutual reinforcement. So they reinforce and authenticate the oral message, but the oral message also reinforces and authenticates the message stick. So if you're delivering a message into a community with a different language, I can imagine at least that precisely because the message stick motifs are not linked to a specific language, they have the capacity to kind of mutually reinforce a message even across language boundaries. So that's the way I'm... Um, Thinking about it at the moment, so, keeping in mind that these are multilingual communities, though, their resources are there to communicate. But I wonder then, what is a message stick doing when all these other things are available to help to help um, channel the message in a particular way?
1: Um, that brings us really to the um, to the million dollar question. Uh, question: Are um, message sticks a form of writing, and um, how are they related to other writing
0: systems? I think that's a really great great question. It's worth revisiting that question, because of course 130 years ago people were asking it, but we can revisit it, I think, from a less Eurocentric or a less literacy centric perspective. Um, and a standard definition of writing is that it is a system of visual science that That model some kind of linguistic structure. And usually what it models is phonology. So that's why we talk about writing systems as being phonographic. They're coding for and reproducing salient sounds of language. But a writing system can also sometimes model morphology, excuse me, but in a more limited way. So we can then call that process um, logographic or morphographic. Um, And ampersand, for example, models the English word and, but it will also stand for counterpart words for and in other languages, like und in German or er in French, because it's not latching onto a phonetic signal. It's simply standing in for a word. On the whole, method sticks don't do anything like this. Um, the signs on them convey meaning, but they're not phonographic or logographic on the whole. So two people um, interpreting the same message stick Um, will not come up with the same form of words. That's how we know that it's not writing, or will not be exactly the same form of words. There are potential logographs on some message sticks. So for example, some message sticks have signatures on them, what amounts of signatures that identify the messenger or even the recipient with some specific emblems. there's an amazing message to pick from Victoria, sadly it's lost. We have a sketch of it. It has a rebus on it in the form of a picture of a hand. And the word hand in that language spoken um, near Warrnambool, is Munya, um, which is also the local word for meeting. And this is very much writing according to the strictest definition of it. Um, because you know, you're drawing attention to the, the sound Of the word by referencing a homophobe. But it's clear from commentary that explanations produced by Aboriginal message stick makers and messengers that this is not a principle that's generally at work in the production of motifs. Um, But if message-ticks are not on the whole writing, as we understand the term, then I don't know how to account for these cases where message-ticks were interpreted with accuracy without the benefit of a verbal message to gloss it. So there's cases where we don't have a messenger, and this is a central puzzle in my research. I do have a few inklings, though. Um, Firstly, when it comes to the most kind of traditional or classical message sticks, there's there's only a finite range of things that a message stick can actually be about. Um, Most commonly, it will be an invitation to ceremony. That's the number one. Uh, uh, young men's initiation or a funeral, for example. These are the kind of the top two ceremonies that involve large groups of people that are communicated about with message sticks. This is right across Australia. Then you get message sticks that are for coordinating hunting. Um, You get declarations of war, requests for political alliances. You get requests for items, especially, you know, tradable or luxury items of value. Uh, sometimes you get a kind of a news bulletin and so on. So if you're seeing a messenger approach, you have already perhaps have an idea about what the likely message will be on the basis of kind of a probabilities. And then the messenger could be painted up in a particular way to, for example, covered in pipe clay from morning. So that gives you a good guess that it's um, uh, that, that it's probably about a funeral. I've seen there's sticks that have got pipe clay on them with kind of fingerprints <laughs> of the pipe clay. And so I, it makes me imagine that the, the messenger was um, covered in pipe clay and this is rubbed off onto the stick. Um, then the message itself will be from a specific named individual to another specific individual. And when you know who that person is and their relationship to the recipient, it one constrains the possible topics. So when my dad calls me and I see his number pop up on my phone, it's often about fixing his computer. You know, I can pretty much guess that as soon as I see his number, that's probably what the topic is going to be. If my brother calls me, well, that topic of communication is less likely. It could be a number of other things. And in Aboriginal Australia, we know kinship and social categories can regulate the kinds of things you can talk about as well as the way you're expected to talk about them. And their expectations, in other words, based on the identity of the sender or recipient and their prior relationship. Um, and in many Aboriginal societies, uh, as we know, the whole universe is t- t- divided up along kinship or social category lines. So the kind of timber that's selected for the message might be meaningful in terms of what it's pointing to in the world, or rather who it's pointing to in the world. And at other times, it really means nothing at all. So in some of the field work I'm doing, on and message stick makers have used, for example, wood from um, paper bark tree. And um, I asked about this, and I say, oh no, it's because it's softwood, it's really easy to work. Um, on another occasion, they produced a message stick from salvage timber, because um, we couldn't get a four-wheel drive so they found some salvage timber that was lying around the backyard and probably just an off cut from construction. So the point is with everything I've sent so far that even before we get to the science, even before we consider the motif, there is already a very pretty well-constrained frame of reference. Um, when it comes to the signs themselves, they can be quite basic and abstract, so as I mentioned notches and lines and dots, and nothing that jumps out of you as being pregnant with you know, deep meaning, and they can be quite multivalent too. So a notch is often a person, but it can also be a place. It can be a countable object. It can be an element in a narrative, and a large part of my work is to try to identify signs and meanings and figure out what general class of information is being encoded where. So what's being talked about in the verbal message, uh, what's recorded on the stick, and what's entirely unspoken and implicit in these exchanges. So to sum up, um, I think a message can achieve results that are very like writing without actually being writing, and you could make the case that the signs have, to some extent, semantic values, but not language-specific linguistic values. Um, when it comes to looking at how message sticks relate to other systems, I think it's important to to listen writing or language-based writing. It's just one kind of conventionalized visual code that's out there in the world. There are many others, like Andean string keepers, that are knotted cords once used in the Inca Empire for quite complex accounting and administration, there are lots of symbol systems in West Africa and indeed in North America for recording information, sometimes calendrical, sometimes ritual-related. And I'd like to get a sense of where methods fit in that whole spectrum. Um, there are those like uh, Elizabeth Hill Boone, who uh, is a brilliant scholar, uh, and she makes the case that we need to make a we need to come up with a bigger and more inclusive definition of writing. I actually don't agree with it. I think that the the definition of writing being a representation of spoken language is a good one. It's well grounded. It's the connotations that we need to challenge, and thinking in terms of um, decolonization, I I worry especially about well-intentioned moves to try to award um, prestige to a cultural practice on the basis of its underlying or superficial similarity to a Western or European model. And instead, I think, you know, let's decolonize the typology itself and decentre writing and literacy as being somehow preeminent. And let's accept and um, and value that there are other ways to communicate with signs, uh, with visual phones that are perfectly adequate for their purpose. And these should be defined on their own terms, not just in relation to writing. Um, so that's the kind of, it's a, it's what I think of as the Bruce Pasco paradox, you know, you want to compare, but you also want to, you don't want to centre the, the colonial metric, if you like.
1: Yeah, I mean, these are all such difficult and important questions to discuss, and we could go on all day because this is so fascinating, but I'm very mindful that I've already taken quite a lot of your time. Uh, before I let you go, if... Someone I was listening, he's been listening to this, gets really interested and wants to learn more. Do you just tell us where can people go if they want to learn more about message sticks? And is there a way for anyone to actually join the research?
0: Yeah, yeah, to all of that. Yeah, I think like the best thing to the way to start is you can go to the Australian message stick database to googling it and um, click around. Uh, down the bottom of the screen, there's a little map. You can click around. You can find what's in your area uh, from parts of Australia that you're interested in or where you might be from. Uh, and if you live in Australia, most towns will have a local cultural centre or keeping place where you might be lucky enough to see a method stick and you can maybe join um, uh, locally-led, indigenously-led research on the ground. Um, at the moment, I'm hoping to work with Aboriginal artists from in and around Armidale, New South Wales, to reconstruct traditional techniques for carving message sticks. I'm really looking forward to to that. Um, so starting local is always a great idea. Um and the fact that there hasn't been very much written about message sticks is disappointing, but it's a good thing to the extent that there's very little that you have to read in order to be fully up to date. So I have online you could find it with Googleing it. I think um, an annotated PDF called "A Very Short Reading Guide to Research on Australian Sticks, which is just a beginner's guide to get you started. Um, there's plenty of, there's endless topics in this area. Um, so if you're interested in pursuing research topics, I don't hesitate to get directly in touch with me. I can um, I can point you further into the right direction, especially if you're perhaps doing a master's topic or an honor's topic, I'm very happy to help out there.
1: Thanks so much, Piers. And we'll make sure to actually put up all those links together with this particular podcast and make them available. Thank you very much for your time and back with your aces.
0: Not at all. Thank you very much.